What's your favourite scary movie? For many, it's the 1996 hit Scream, one of the defining horrors of the 90s. Of course, like the many slashers that it satirised, Wes Craven's self-aware slasher has gone on to spawn several sequels. While Wes is sadly no longer with us, The Sixth Century has just dropped this year. Directed now by the duo Tyler Gillett and Matt Bitnell Alpin, aka Radio Silence, who took over with Part 5, Part 6 takes it from the comfortable location of Woodsboro off to the big, vast metropolis that is New York City. Well, we've done all the other films in this show, so we figured we'd do one, this one as well. Joining me tonight, as usual, are my uh, beloved co-hosts, Mr. Alistair Duell and Jim Lamming. Say hi, guys. Hi. Hey, how's it going? And let's see what we made of Scream 6. Dream 6. Now, Alistair, before we get to the real meat of this show, you weren't with us when uh, Screams 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 were covered on here. So just wondering briefly what your kind of relationship with the series is. Have you always been a fan of Scream? It's like the Shaun of the Dead of the Slasher series. It is taking the piss out of movie formula. It is meta. It acknowledges the procedures and the architecture of the plots of these movies but it's also trying to be one at the same time so i don't want to say it's like having your cake and eating it because i say Shaun of the dead there which was a very good meta zombie film one of my favorite films i thoroughly enjoy it with with screen it's gone from a single movie to now entering franchise territory the sequels have to get more and more specialized and the, the second film has to pick apart sequels whilst being one and then the trilogy picked apart trilogies do you know what i mean and then you get to a point where i mean we're at screen six now and i think one of the issues with this franchise is that it's trying to be meta and the longer the films go on for the less and less material it's actually going to have to pick at because how many film series actually goes on for six films? Fun fact, according to Wikipedia, as of August this year, there is a seventh Scream film in production. So they're limited now to ripping the piss out of uh, probably the Star Trek films and Police Academy. Scream 5 did quite a good job of sort of commenting on the revival. This was the, the requel they, they were referring to it as. And Scream 6 doesn't really have that to hang on to. Scream 6 does quite an admirable job, however, of being yet another horror film about trauma that doesn't really... It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't handle it as clumsily as, say, Smile, which we did a couple of episodes ago. You know, it roots the plot in the sort of emotional response of the characters to things that have happened before. It's very much a stuck-in-the-past kind of film. It's about recovery from the past. It's about finding a whole new reason to live. But at the same time, it's not doing this in a way where there's the obvious metaphor, if you excuse the overly literal bit of, let me go, and then she has to let her go because she trusts uh, Tara. It, it seems to be less about movies than the previous ones, I would say. Well, this one seems to be about franchises and then going meta about what you do when you reach this point in a franchise. Because mm. I think that's the expansion on five. Because five was basically like we've got the legacy characters and we've got the new characters, and then this one's like, all right, we can create a sense of danger now because the legacy characters can die, and now so can the main characters. Because by this point, point where none of them do, admittedly, we go straight into spoilers. This this kind of makes this film a bit of a wet squid. <laughs> we could do the dangerous, meaningful thing, but we won't. Let's come to that in a wee bit, though. Overall, the main thing this is doing, the main thing this is adding to the franchise, is this new location. Guys, did you like New York? I know it's not really New York, but did you like New York City as a location for it? What about you, Jim? What are your thoughts? Uh, 
it wouldn't be the first disappointing sequel to be set in New York, would it? Most of it's Superman. I, <laughs> I, I just think in general, regardless of where it was set, it just didn't really hit the spot for me. Uh, I mean, this is coming off uh, another disappointing sequel uh, in the franchise, which, granted, five wasn't entirely terrible it, you know had some great moments but it just slowly veered downhill from the halfway point whereas this one didn't even seem to get to a peak if you ask me <laughs> yeah i, I don't this, this could have been set on the moon and it wouldn't have been that great i think the setting is just to try and entice people back you know it's 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 going to be different but it, it, you know ultimately it wasn't the reason i want to f- focus on the setting first it's because I think that is the main new part, because now, rather than being set in the suburbs, there's an intensity to the action scenes in this, or at least in some of them, because we're set in small flats. I thought that added a new dimension to it. And it was also quite nice to sort of take some of the uh, iconography and take it to, like, a deserted city street, um, or, like, save the underground bit. But yeah, I, I mean, in terms of to cut to the jugular, actually, with this one, I actually quite liked this film. I, I thought this is probably a better film than Part Five. Part Five, I had a problem with some of the character work. I thought with Sam in particular, we find her after the most interesting stuff's happened. You know, this was a film about two sisters reconnecting, but we needed to see that sort of darkness in her that apparently she had to like run away from Taro because of, and we did get to see that a bit more here. I think the characterization was stronger in this one. And I thought that the core four, as they're now known, they felt like they could carry a movie in their own right. In fact, I would actually argue that Gail Weathers was one massive distraction in this film. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, they got rid of pretty much every other legacy character, as they say. Except Neve Campbell, who didn't come back because she, was, because she wasn't being offered whatever amount of money she was asking for. She made the point that the amount of money they were offering her was disproportionately low compared to the amount of money she'd bring into the franchise. I, I'm a big fan of actors getting paid for uh, or pay, getting paid for the work they put into a franchise, but I also am actually glad Sydney wasn't in this film because we have far too many returning characters. Mm. With the main four, we have Gale coming back into it. We have Kirby coming back into this one as well. Which was one of the problems for the previous film as well. Yeah. Like, if, yeah. if you're asking me, Sydney didn't even need to be in that one. But not, not Gail, really, because we're on a new generation of kids, I suppose. And this is their story as opposed to everyone else's. I, I know it all ties into each other. We've got all these meta-references throughout each film. I mean, this series is tiring itself out of referencing itself over and over again. And to keep dragging people back from the previous ones this this time around i just felt battered into the ground by it all <laughs> i was okay with it in five because it had a passing the torch element to it mm. because they sort of tied the, the motive into toxic fandom then i quite like the idea of here's the characters that they sort of love that they want to see again and then uh, here's the new cast that are going to be taking it off in a new direction. Also, Billy coming back, that was the worst thing in part five, was these force bits of going, oh, yeah, well, I know we just said that Billy was a rapist in this film, but hey, you might be happy when you see Skeet coming back on, right? And that just <laughs> kind of detracted from whatever they were trying to do with that. You know, you've got uh, Sam surrounded by people she could take inspiration from, but instead decides to take it off her, uh, off her rapist dad. But, yeah. Yeah, when he appeared again, she's looking in that uh, display case. <laughs> and if my, my initial yeah. reaction, as I've written down here, was, oh, fuck off. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the mirror again, I thought we'd done with that in the previous film. You know, that demon had been exercised, but we've got to bring it up again in this one. I know it's mentioned in with the therapy session at the beginning, but yeah, I just, I think this may be the part where it lost me altogether. <laughs> Yeah, it's done this thing again that number five did of trying to draw a moral equivalency between their self-defense and the slashers. Mm. And whilst she does not need to stab him as often as she does by the end of the film, (laughs) it's such a kind of cartoon world that that seems like an appropriate response, you know? Because this isn't, these aren't like realistic films about the consequences of violence. They're sort of like, 
comedies, basically. And the universe of this takes place, and it's entirely acceptable to stab a person like 40 times in the arm or whatever. It, obviously unacceptable in real life. We at horror cult films would never condone acts of violence. But at the same time, with the universe that they've created, it's not got the impact they think it's going to because it's already a heightened reality. I think with her having the uh, history of she's the daughter of a serial killer, and he every now and then appears in a mirror, tempting her to kill in a serialized fashion. It's Tyrannosaurus Rex in the Jurassic Park movies. It's like the T-Rex would kill to eat for sustenance, and that's indiscriminate. However, in the films, it just happens to kill all the bad guys immediately. <laughs> mm. And that seems to be like, like she will have this inner conflict of stabbing these guys innumerable times for it's certainly impactful scenes. And you can't deny that the individuals that she does stab certainly are receiving a dose of their own medicine. But it's interesting to have that challenge of she could become this. But that's that's an interesting ingredient that was not in the previous uh movies. Yeah, I think it would have landed more if the tone had been darker. But actually, something I loved about this one, which I thought would have been interesting, is you know the opening sequence, right, where we've got Samara Weaving being killed uh, when she's going out on what she thinks is going to be a date. And uh, then, once she's off, the killer then takes off his mask, and I thought, oh, wow, are we going to get a screen film which is all told from a killer's perspective? No, yeah. that would have been. <laughs> yeah, that that's what I was expecting. After Samara Weaving gets stabbed a few times, we see it just kind of linger on the killer, and I did think for a second, "Oh, are they going to take the mask off already?" And they did, and it's like, "Oh, okay, that's interesting." So then we follow the killer home, who then just happens to bump into one of the main characters. On the way mm -hmm. home, yeah. so oh, yeah, I'll see you at the party later. So, oh, where's this going? And then it turns out, I, I assume the killer has a boyfriend, but the, the way they speak to each other, and they're both in it together, they, it's clear they're obsessed with the stab films, and they want to finish a film it's mentioned. So I assume mm. the previous stab film got cancelled or whatever. And then he gets the phone call from who he assumes is his other half, and then after a bit of back and forth and wandering around, it turns out he's in the fridge in pieces. And then the killer's behind him. And that's when I thought, oh, no, okay, we're sticking to formula. <laughs> it's, just, it's just another clever opening, a bit like uh, number four. There's quite a nice little gag there with the guy being called Jason and, of course, the head being the fridge, yeah. like what happens in Friday the 13th Part 2. With finishing the movie, I didn't take that as a comment on Stab. I took that as like the the idea that these characters the, these characters see themselves as characters in a movie, essentially, uh, and creating a new one. Yeah, yeah. Like for them, it's going ah, the story needs to be finished, and for the story to be finished, Tara and Sam both need to get uh, get off, basically, and justice for uh, for Richie, etc. Uh, but I think as far as the sort of setup goes, yeah, it was a relatively typical one. I guess we where we did maybe have a slight difference in the focus was that they were going out hunting towards the end. They were going out hunting the killer, which I don't think has happened in the franchise before. It's usually them waiting for the killer to come along. By the way, did you guys clock the killer early on? Uh, I had my suspicions. Uh, I think hot neighbor guy, who is pretty much just referred to as that, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Literally, yeah. Yeah, he is. I think he was basically lined up as a red herring for the entire thing. But he, he stunk so much of red herring. Yeah, that, that was, that, he could do an, an advert for an aftershave called Red Herring. Did I do it? Maybe. <laughs> that was clearly his role. And I think the more the film went on, the clearer it was that maybe it isn't him. I, I know they have an accomplice normally in these, but yeah. The, the, the more the film went on, the less I suspected it was him. Um, but there's always that rug pull. The policeman probably seemed the most suspect throughout. Because mm -hmm. um, he, he seemed quite shady, but then also Kirby appearing out of nowhere and acting a little gingerly about everything. But you, I knew yeah, it was never going to be... never be her. No. But uh, I... I 
had my suspicions it was the cop, but you know, obviously, once his kids were supposedly killed, I thought, oh well, that's that because she's dead, and he wouldn't kill his own kids. So. Yeah, see, I didn't think that she was dead, uh, be- just because we didn't see the actual cop, we just saw the body coming yeah. out. Although for some reason, despite him saying like. Ah, yes, you know, you never fuck with a man's family or whatever he says. Whatever that line was, which is the, the big clue line, and then we go, oh, he's going to be rich you later. At the same time, it never occurred to me that he was also the killer, despite that he was the one who said she was dead. But I knew that she was going to be one of the killers, and I was just waiting for the long, baited return of Stu, which still hasn't happened in the franchise. You know, I would have probably preferred that reveal over mm. what we got that would have been much more satisfying because it just felt really flat come the reveal. I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, really? Uh, <laughs> it's a thing of the cluttered narrative, because again, like with Five, where we had so many different characters in it that the killers didn't really get much airtime. And then in this one, they still didn't. Like, uh, I mean, Ethan's in it, like, he probably gets about three or four scenes where, he, where we really see him. And uh, Quinn's only in it for the first little bit. So... We yeah. are left going, all right, is it Hot Neighbor Guy or is it uh, Kirby? And as Alistair said, big red herring. It's deodorant of choice. Don't we basically be cancelled if it was Kirby? All the fans love her. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that during my uh, watch through of texting David at the time with my suspicions as to who they were, I had four guesses. And I would have it a guess and then renege, guess again, renege on that one. Like Kirby was what she was my wrong one. I was absolutely floored when I found out that three of my guesses were correct. Um, <laughs> so it's Quinn, the father, uh, Wayne Bailey, and Ethan, and all three of them turned up. And I only ruled out Quinn because she, you know, quote unquote, died. I just want to just take a timeout just for two seconds to really think about the mechanics of her death. Right, we have a scene that is sort of hailing back to the first Halloween film where Laurie Strode is on the phone with her friend and she's making what you think are sex noises but she's actually getting attacked by Mike Myers and they recreate that year early on it's set up with Quinn sleeping with this man who I forget the name she comes out and says who's that in there with you Gary and the, the guy's voice in the background shouts out who's Gary <laughs> oh yeah, anyway. yeah that's a good bit <laughs> She's, so she's making those noises in the bedroom. And then later on, it's set up that oh, she's making similar noises in the bedroom again, and nobody's concerned with it because they just think she's with them. She's entertaining a gentleman friend in her bedroom. And it turns out that, oh no, she's getting knifed to death by Ghostface. Bearing in mind, from retroactively knowing this from the end reveal, that Ghostface has to be, if it's not Quinn herself, it's either her father or her brother. One of those two guys dressed up as Ghostface to fake her death, and she had to make those noises. <laughs> bit weird. It's yes, a bit weird. Yeah. That, is a, that is a strange one. Then we get the picture that's airdropped to everyone in the apartment, and it appears to be from the point of view of Hot Neighbour. So did he take the photo to try and tell everyone that there's someone in the building? Or did that come from the other killer? It could have, because there were two other killers. We have yeah. three, three ghost faces. I mean, reasonably, it could have been the other one, but yeah. you know, well, sometimes if, these things don't If it was sense. the neighbour doing it as a warning to everyone else in there, mm-hmm. why didn't he just call the police rather than, I know, I'll, I'll just stop, take a photo... Right, let's find everyone's Bluetooth signature on here and, you know, <laughs> it just seemed a bit odd. I know what you mean. I, I know like, it takes into consideration current technology and stuff like that, you know, it has done throughout the years, but yeah, it just felt a bit daft. See, that is a very sad commentary on police response times in New York. Although the paramedics got to Gale very quickly. Didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> the, the police of this were absurd. Though. I mean, keeping in mind the police here decide to give Detective Bailey all sorts of evidence from crimes that were committed 30 years ago in a different city. Like, there's no <laughs> way that he'd get access to that. 
they also didn't seem to go, oh, do you, you, you know, do you think uh, maybe this is about this is about Detective Bailey since Richie's his son? One thing that Sam did not seem to know anything about her boyfriend's family. But let's be positive about this film here. I reckon there's a level of intensity about this one that the others have lacked because like this was by far the most violent in the series. Now maybe I'm getting older. Uh, you know, maybe I'm coming soft of age, but I remember the cinema watching this and thinking, oh, I feel like a bit of a sadist here. Like, especially that ladder sequence, you know, where we're going between the two apartments. That was, that was a really so good set funny. piece. That so was the wrong response. I was laughing. I mean, it's so obvious she's going to die. Oh, I thought that yeah. was nasty. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a I, I thought it was going to be a little more gruesome, seems she was pretty much gutted in the living room. So her falling like seven stories and then hitting her head off of a dumpster that's not enough for you Jim well it's not that it wasn't enough for me it's that a moment earlier should have been the eighth she'd story been yeah. stabbed from stomach to chest and then now, was climbing over a ladder several stories don't don't forget <laughs> the knife was also twisted which happens a lot in this yeah film. yeah but yeah, as I say, I was just expecting all the insights to spill out while she was climbing across the uh, fair play, fair ladders, play. but uh, maybe it wasn't quite she, as she needed to as button that. up. <laughs> yeah. I think it was partially helped by the intensity of the scene before, which is, again, the small apartment slashing sequence, which we've never had so far. That was cool. The other things that I was a bit of a fan of in this, I thought the sister's relationship was, as I said earlier, fundamentally far more interesting on the grounds that rather than seeing them as estranged sisters, now we're seeing them as trying to uh, retain, mm. or at least Tara retaining an independent life from the sister that she previously was like, oh, you know, Sam's never around, Sam Sam sodded off, and Sam's like, all right, well, now I'm here, and I'm, and I'm not going to leave. And I thought that that was quite an interesting dynamic. I also quite liked the way that they did handle the trauma aspect when she's going, like, it's a line where she goes, are you okay? And then she smiles and says no, as if, how we can talk about this? Because the whole thing was about that Tara wasn't facing up to what happened. Uh, well, Sam's going, oh, I uh, actually quite enjoyed it. You know, what she says, it felt right when she's asked about uh, stabbing a guy 22 times and then slitting his throat. I thought that that was quite well handled. Again, like how someone responds after a slasher film is not a particularly new thing, but I did like that they sort of explored the more complex emotions of survival in this one. You know, same to an extent with Gale as well. We did see Gale had a new partner. He was completely Dead. superfluous, but yeah, yeah. He died. <laughs> he died. In the background, uh, one of the ghost faces snuck out. Which one of the ghost faces do you suppose that was? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you see, all yeah. interchangeable. Three for three. Uh, it's I'd getting say six to the and point. two threes. <laughs> You've already mentioned uh, one of the Cornetto films. We're, we're getting to the point where it's almost hot fuzz, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Dalton. We've got one round every time. Timothy corner. Dalton from Hot Fuzz in a screen film. Sign me up. Sold. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> As much as I also didn't like seeing so many returning characters, I did think it was quite quite fun seeing uh, the sort of back and forth between Gale and Kirby. That was a lot of fun. Kirby, she and the Sam Carpenter character, I found, like, they first see each other, and then there's the musical twang of all friends together, and then they hug. Like, we've never seen these. The audience has not seen these two characters together before. So we get the explanation of, oh, uh, she was a senior when I was a fresher. Yeah, yeah. Which I still don't buy, frankly. (laughs) Okay, fine, they know each other. We're we're linking into the... uh, There's a lot of legacy characters that survived this film. (laughs) We get more ghost faces, but, like, no legacy deaths. Like, these three ghost faces were incompetent. At least Jack Quaid or uh, the girl Amber Amber Freeman from the previous film, at least they managed to get rid of Dewey. Yeah, I didn't like that the way that Gale survived. Uh, I either would have just killed Gale off and just not add her in it at all. Like The thing is going, all right, Gale's there and she survived. It's a bit like with part four, where part four felt like to sell the killer, they really need to kill off one of the main three, particularly as it was at the time. 
we were like, oh, this is going to be a whole new kind of spin-off. It's to be a whole new trilogy. It wasn't a new trilogy. And yeah, not having a not having a sequel for like however many years between uh, four and five. But at the same time, like you have to have that sense of danger. Wes Craven was a big fan of saying you have to fear the directors. Why he wanted to kill off a famous actor in the beginning of Scream One, and we just don't really fear the directors of these ones. It's a bit like with uh, Game of Thrones, you know, in uh, episode three of season eight with the Long Night one, where the characters have plot armor that basically keeps them alive even when they shouldn't be. Because mm-hmm. we get a hell of a lot of bits where, like, you know, when Kirby gets stabbed from behind, you know, or she gets shot. In fact. You know, we I got almost, yeah. actually want to challenge you on that one and call that a false equivalence for the simple fact that what they would do in season eight of Game of Thrones is here's a character, whether it's Sam Tarley or Brienne of Tarth, they're swarmed with zombies, they're about to die. We cut away to something else, something else happens, we cut back to our beloved characters. Oh, they're still killing zombies and they're fine, they survive. Kirby got stabbed and like you see that she's in a lot of pain. It's not Game of Thrones season eight. Barry was also shot, and Chad was stabbed like 20 times. Hey, another man got tasered in the <laughs> testicles, so... Uh, I mean... Do, I mean do, 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 do you think he survived the film? I mean, some people, when they accidentally taser themselves in the balls, they have heart attacks, but I don't want to go political <laughs> with uh, <laughs> the uh, January 6th uprising. Well, there was no mask left at the scene, so I think it's safe to assume <laughs> he got away with that one. A minute silence for that mask <laughs> testicles. <laughs> I did quite like the sequence where Gail almost died, however. This chase in the apartment was very good. There is no way yeah. the killer would know she's never had a call before <sighs> since it's a different killer. <laughs> well, no, this, is, this is one of those, like, this is, this is for the benefit of the audience scenes, mm. as we all know. It's there's no way the killer would have known that. Although it was actually quite a bit of a pleasure to just hear Roger L. Jackson's the voice throughout the series for uh, what a fun job you've got. No matter who takes up the mantle <laughs> of Ghostface, you get to say all the cool lines. Mm. And, you know, he's getting to say the lines. By the way, Ghostface is kind of falling behind the times. This is someone dressing up in a way that deprives you of field of vision. You have no peripheral vision. Can you have peripheral vision wearing ghost mask? Mask? I don't think you can. I meant to say ghost face mask. <laughs> and then you're wielding a knife and all of your victims are armed with handguns. Hats off to, well, masks off to the ghost face villains in this series because they're punching up. It's a series that, quite interestingly, like the series will regularly sort of make fun of its uh, make fun of itself because it's doing a genre that's no longer in vogue. You know, it's still doing slashers and an age where slashers are kind of seen as a bit irrelevant. So I, I liked that aspect of it. Um, although it is a bit strange to see them occasionally pay lip service to elevated horror in huge speech marks, but at the same time, not really use the language of elevated horror. Like, at least when they started to do this with found footage and uh, remakes in the previous ones, they did incorporate those into the story. Whereas this one, it's like, they acknowledge horror has moved on, but they don't really talk about what horror is right now. You, you get that big uh, monologue of, uh, you know, establishing what the rules are again. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, it just seemed for nothing. Um, you know... Like yeah, it's like the the takeaway was don't trust anyone. It could be any of them, and it you know was uh, <laughs> two of them at least uh, that were with them at the time. But it, yeah, it just went off on one about franchises and who can be in them and stuff. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think just it got far too self-referential far too often, which. In the first film, you know, is is great because it's it's a refreshing send of of the genre. And the second, yeah, you're riding on that wave. It's still quite amusing. But now we're at number six, you know, uh-huh. come on. The bit where they find a shrine to the first movie was yeah. quite <laughs> and then like we got this sort of knowing dialogue of like. I built a tribute to my son. In this case, the son representing the franchise. I was like. Ugh. But 
mean, what can I say? By this, by this point, you know what we're getting. Um, I did quite like we've incorporated a real thing into this again, which was the pounding that uh, Melissa Barrera got after the first movie. So she ended up having to leave Twitter because she was getting constant death threats and like racialized abuse from folk. And they also incorporated that into the story, which is about how uh, how Sam was getting dogpiled because everyone thought that she was the killer. So it felt like they were bringing the self-referential nature to the world outside the film as well. Uh, but at the same time, I thought that at least added something because I think one of the strengths of these ones versus the first four is the core four are a lot more realistic as characters than the uh, than the original cast were. Like the first Scream, all the young folk just watch as complete psychopaths nowadays, including Sydney. You know, where it's like, all right, someone's died and they're like, ha Like no one gives a shit about any of the stuff that's happening around him because it's making a comment of, well, this is an exaggerated version of teenagers that watch slasher films. To them, the lines between fancy and reality are so blurred. But because the slasher age was so long ago, they don't really do that this time. I think the characters are more rounded. They do feel more like people you could meet. I mean, Mindy, I guess, is a replacement that we have for uh, Randy. Although the scene where her and Kirby both had a sort of geek out together was nice. But at the same time, uh, Mindy feels real and vulnerable in a way that Randy never really did. Like Randy was kind of a smart, this kind of too sort of almost too smart ass for the series, but then I suppose that's also because the series, by this point, we know its language already, so it's not going to be doing another complete Randy again. It feels like a natural progression for her. Basically, mm-hmm. I mean, from the first film, it's talking about slasher films and the formula. It's like if a magician explained how the trick is done, and then did the trick. For the audience, I mean, this is the movie equivalent of that to the screen franchise. The first film did that, and then if you're going to have layers of meta slinking into your movie, it'd be natural to add more layers to that when the franchise progresses. So, talking about not just the directors, actors, producers, and writers behind a movie, but to then include the audience in that meta aspect as well. For this franchise, feels. uh, a natural development, and certainly by the time you reach part six in any series, you you know you you feel free to swing for the fences. You know, maybe part of my disappointment was my expectation, because as you say, we're at part six, and that opening did you know get my hopes up for it going in a different direction, maybe freshening things up a bit, but. Ultimately, you know, we just got the same thing over again. Just, you know, maybe slightly different, slightly more modern take, but otherwise, you know, I, I just felt we were just waiting for the Scooby-Doo moment for far too long. Mm. <laughs> That's actually so good. There is a there's the definite Scooby-Doo element to these films. What do we think of the subway scene? Because the subway scene, we've got a few horror icons there. We have the Babadook, we have uh, the Untethered, we have Michael, we have Pinhead, we have, I think, someone from the Grudge. I thought that subway scene was cool. I thought that was one of the times that really did justify the change of location, that this couldn't just we have been set in Woodsboro. We also got a little nod to Ready or Not as well with one of the costumes. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> a wedding dress in a bullet belt. You have to have Samara Weaving in it. I think one of the issues is when you cast a major character in these films and then you kill them off immediately and your franchise gets known for that. Like from Scream 2, you know uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar is not going to make it because that plays the opposite of what she, the role she played in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And of course with Samara Weaving, you know that she is unfortunately the victim of this opening nitpick that putrid yellow dress she was wearing wasn't a fan <laughs> not a comment on the actress or acting abilities she nailed it that dress awful yeah because when when she appeared in it like i was like all right this is radio silence because we did ready or not they, they're they've called in the favor and then the uh, dad from Reggie or Not shows up as well as a therapist, right? So it's like, okay, cool. We're getting a nice bit of crossover. He's now in the Mission Impossible uh, franchise, franchise as well. I'd love to see Tom Cruise in these three films. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would Ethan Hunt handle Ghostface? 
Well, the, the subway bit would have probably been a little more action-filled. <laughs> yes, yeah, so the, the subway, as I was saying, right, I thought the subway, it all comes full circle, I thought the subway scene was really cool. That was one which did justify the switch of location. It was one which called upon, um, where it knows from the legacy of this film alongside other, alongside other films within the canon, because it would make sense it had multiple ghost faces on this one, largely because, of course, the ghost face mask now exists in-universe. And it's iconic in the universe as well. So I thought that was all really cool. And it was a nice bit of genuine tension about who the killers were. Because mm. at that point, we were thinking, oh, it's totally Ethan. And then, obviously, it's not Ethan. You know, he goes in and she's like, oh, yeah. damn, I was wrong. Mindy. Yeah, that, that was strange. Because if they did want to kill them off, why didn't he finish the job? Or, or were they doing well, that solely to throw them off the scent of him? I don't know, because Mindy uh, was ultimately stabbed by Quinn, but, like, everyone thinks Quinn's dead anyway. I mean, hmm. maybe it was so she could say the killer wasn't Ethan, but who would she say, who, who would she say that to? Because all of them were supposed to be dead by that point anyway, yeah. if, the plan, if and, the plan had worked. <laughs> and given that they were 10 minutes away from the reveal as well, I, I just find it odd that he left it to be seen to by the you know, paramedics or whatever. <laughs> um, something I did think they'd talk about a bit more is another big development in the field would be true crime. Because we did previously have that with part four when we had the book coming out. But it's such a new thing. I would have quite liked to see some, like, mad podcasters and stuff like that trying to get interviews and things yeah, and maybe it, stalking them. It is briefly mentioned, but then almost immediately forgotten about especially so, yeah. in a new dork campus as well students, yeah. students love this kind of stuff you know the young folks are always listening to these uh like uh kind of rape and murder uh podcasts so yeah missed potential <laughs> anyway i want to talk very briefly about uh there's moments in these films that i love that's when ghostface usually outing themselves then starts Draw, they drop the pretense. Literally, you get the mask slip. I should have started with the mask slip. Anyway, <laughs> they start acting like, you know, yeah, we know we're the killer. And they become a lot more fun. The father um, in Scream yeah. 6 and um, Jack Quaid in Scream 5. And uh, I'll get the actress's name, who played Amber... Freeman, she was really good uh, when she did the mask slip. She holds the knife up and starts making the eek noises when she's uh, <laughs> like a psycho. Like this is the right. This is the in between when you have to pretend you're innocent and one of the victims, but before you get killed, you get the sweet spot where look at all the scenery around you. How hungry are you? How much do you want to? Chew this scenery, get in there. They have that those moments in the third act. There, I love those. Those are always fun. I was my favorite one that I fell in love with was Rebecca Gayhart of the first Urban Legend film, mm. and when she revealed herself as the killer, nobody's quite chewed the scenery just like she did. Some have come close, but that's the first one I always remember when I thought I'm enjoying this film now. Yeah, they call that the evil voice when it's in murder mysteries. When we are going, oh yes, it was me. Right? And they suddenly start going into the sort of uh, Jesse Eisenberg, Lex Luthor impression. With Scream, the Scream yeah, basically has... That's equivalent, but I, I, I don't have the energy <laughs> to pick it apart. With, with, with Scream, they have like one mode. Uh, and that's... Oh, two, two modes. They have their default mode, and then they have crazy. You don't have the killer who is also quite logical or the killer who's like just a bit psychopathic but also sort of reserved. No, we're all very in your face once we've been revealed. Oh, yes. Sort of love it. Let's move on to a few other little little areas we think where could have been uh, been some potential. Now, well, that sounds so negative. I actually, I actually quite <laughs> like this film. They um, didn't stab enough people, David. Uh, yeah, I actually still quite like this film. Um, oh, oh, actually, another nitpick before I move on to uh, a good bit. Right. See when they call uh, Detective Bailey and they're like, someone's trying to kill us. Detective Bailey then goes, why don't you, why don't you come down to the station? And I'm like, 
the balls of this guy. Someone goes, all right, someone's trying to kill us. Can we get a squad car? You go, yes. Or you offer a squad car. You don't go, oh, someone's trying to kill you, eh? Well, why don't you come to the safety of the police station? Like, when they get into the, uh, the, the shop, the police show up pretty much straight away. So it's not like they're out of police wagons. It's just, it's just for a story to function at all. The characters can't just ask for a ride to the police station. They have to walk there. And that irritated mm-hmm. the absolute hell out of me, considering that they are now potentially going to die. I want to call a few things that they get right was set an Amber Freeman character on fire, which was a direct homage to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Same actress, same death, almost. I would actually say the Scream 5 version was actually toned down for Quentin Tarantino's mm. movie. I want to give a shout out to Kyle Gallner, who played Vince Schneider in Scream 5. He was, as you'll recall, because it was the three of us that did the Smile podcast uh, not too long ago, he was the former love interest of the lead in Smile. He's the guy who dies in the car park. He gets uh, the the headlights turn on whilst he's outside having a piss. There's a moment he Mm. looks around, the car backs up, there's nobody in the car, knife in the neck. It was a quick, clean, efficient kill. He nailed it. As or a, it, nailed, it, it nailed him. As a wee story of this, when Alistair was go watching number six, he's, he's suddenly going, I don't think I've seen five. Read to Wikipedia page, and absolutely none of this is jumping out at me at it's all. descriptions in our WhatsApp group chat. It's like, I, I have not seen this. Yeah, none, of, none of this was ringing a bell. Like 25 minutes in going, I've seen this movie. I was like, must have left quite an impression on you. <laughs> Yeah, I started remembering bits as it went along. And said, oh, wait, I have seen this film. So how do we reckon this compares to Five? Because I said, I personally like this more. I think it's a mu- much more interesting in terms of where it puts the characters. It does lose something in that I thought that Five, by grinding the motive in nostalgia and fandom, I think it was doing, dealing with something very contemporary, which this one is trying to do something that's more character-driven. And... Uh, not enti- I, I don't know that it's as much fun, but I did find it ultimately more rewarding. See, I I just don't think it's as much fun. <laughs> mm. While five isn't, you know, the, the the greatest of the bunch, it it does know to have fun as well. It they, they play with the dinner, so to speak. Uh, as Alistair just mentioned, you know, you've got uh, the fire at the end, the bit in the car park. To name a few, you've got some of the old tropes like you know the fridge door being closed. Is there someone behind it? Silly things like that. Uh, but it does go a bit downhill once they stop having fun with the kills. Uh, and with this one, I just felt it was flat throughout. Uh, I quite liked the bit in the bodega. That was quite fun, but it was very fleeting. Uh, ghost face with a shotgun was uh, something new. Uh, but otherwise, it it lacks the frills of the other films. I feel like if they're sticking to formula, they at least need to make it fun. And it just wasn't. Elster, uh, do you have a strong preference in 5v6? There's elements to them where they're sort of both kind of swings and misses. But they they do actually have fun. And they are what you'd expect from a screen film. Plenty of characters scream. There's um, one of my favorite deaths in Scream 6 is the therapist. Because on the TV, mm. there's a knock at the door on the TV. The guy in the television shouts, They're here. They're here already. And as he gets up to go, It's over. It's over for you. Like literally spelling out in the most unsubtle way what's happening. The guy knocks. It's clearly ghost face. It's a, the door's frosted glass. So you can see there's a shadow on the other side and then the outline of ghost face and he gets so close as to get knifed in the nose. Who gets knifed in the nose? That was a fun death. That was a very happy, happy end of therapy. Uh, (laughs) Our our time is up for the therapist. Yeah, I I enjoyed that part. It it had fun. It's, I mean, it's, this is not your avant-garde cinema, but I had fun with it, yeah. One of my favourite lines in it 
notwithstanding the issues with Gail being in it, but the line of, you'd have been a great killer, Gail. Sydney would have made no sense, and Dewey was a fan favourite. So I thought that was quite good. And uh, there was a lot of fans going, oh, maybe it will be Gail's time. Maybe she's been driven mad by all this. You get to have the fact that there's the in-universe cinematic history that is following the murders of this just called Stab. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wonder if there if there will ever... You remember the Sopranos, when they do the film Cleave? Mm. Go on. Cleaver, Let's, yeah. Let, Cleaver, was it? Let something in the universe crossover. Go on, Hollywood, <laughs> make it happen. We can do it. I did love with uh, number five, and they said that the one that made it, <laughs> made them turn violent and kill people to make it better was the one directed by Ryan Johnson. <laughs> that was quite amusing. Uh, did, did that really get a whole lot of mentions in this one? There was the little shrine in the opening bit, because uh, mm. uh, when Jason returns back to his apartment, to put his mask away. He opens a cupboard and there's all posters there and other mask mm. like dummies to put it on. Um, and I guess there's the whole monument to the kills. Well, uh, they play Rich's films that he's made himself. But otherwise, now it's pretty much just referring back to the actual murders themselves as opposed to the films. Uh, folks, should we vote to star ratings? Has anyone else got any big things you want to bring up about this one? No, let's go for it. Um, actually, it's one last one I'd like to bring up. It was a question about uh, Kirby. What did we think of her as an FBI agent? I At first when I watched it, I just didn't buy it. I was like, Kirby would be making movies. She wouldn't be an FBI agent. But then I did like it when, on, on rewatch. I thought, you know what? The fans wanted her to come back. She's a beloved character quite badass it was good to see her uh in an active position rather than just being another victim in these films but i was also like can you be 30 and be the fbi at that <laughs> level <laughs> she does have to point out at one point that she is 30 and she, she's mm. still quite very young looking they were wrong to call that plausible 30 year old let's rephrase that plausible fbi agent mm. No. No, I, I I don't see that happening. But I do like that the villain did his research and found out that she was actually fired three months ago. So mm. on that basis, you don't know what she got fired from. But she, was that a ruse a from the villain to convince everyone else not yeah, to trust? Yeah, I, I thought that was a ruse. But yeah, I think it seems unlikely for her to be an FBI agent because they want us to I think prefer that's the case. Like a, I'd have preferred yeah. her as like a Miss Marple type character. So <laughs> starts doing yeah. their own uh, investigation. I, I think he just sense. wanted to have us be a bit more suspicious about the character more than anything. Because, mm. yeah, FBI usually portrayed as you know, stiff suit guys or the ones that are diehard, that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's just to make us a little, you know, this is sketchy. But I think the character returning and surviving again is quite possibly this one taking the mantle of Dewey. Yeah. But to appeal to maybe a younger audience or the next generation of fans, I suppose, because she came along, what, about 2010? ish and did become a fan favorite and everyone else is getting old as hell now so <laughs> gotta pass these along to some other fan favorites instead and generally speaking do you guys find yourselves caring much about the sisters so i generally did on rewatch a lot more than i did first time i think first time i watched them it was again the thing that made it different for me was i felt like the darker aspect to Sam's character we hinted at in the first one did get to come out a little bit more here. And yeah. I just, just sort of thought there seemed a bit more kind of meat on the bone there thematically mm -hmm. in terms of what we're doing. But at the same time, uh, you know, Jenny Ortega still steals the show, although Sam is the protagonist. I would still I would still see that Tara's the one that you pay more attention to. I think that's just, she's got a hell of a lot of charisma. Yeah, I hope the sisters get their trilogy. Oh, yeah, one more with, with those two in the lead. But go, going back to what Alistair said about the mask slipping in the finale, I felt that's where they were at their best as well. 
mm. slightly unhinged. <laughs> just going Luke, for it. Looks like you're dating uh, another brother. And yeah, that that's where the film became fun for me, is that ending. Prior to that, it just did take itself far too seriously for me. Let's move on to star ratings. So, as far as this one goes, personally, my star rating for this, uh, three, three and a half. It's slightly better for number five. Number five, I loved first time. Second time I watched it, I was like, fuck. There's a lot of things that just didn't work in it. That happened to be the one we, record- we recorded it after I seen it twice. Uh, I think this is better than probably most of them, except for one and four. I'm going to go with a free as well i know i've not had a lot of good things to say about <laughs> it but um it wasn't completely terrible and it was definitely better than screen free uh, i would say it's on par with five in terms of quality uh, i thought that one was a bit more fun but uh, I, I guess some of the as you said more visceral parts of it were a lot more eye-popping than previous films and some of the characters were pretty cool uh, but yeah, it doesn't hold a candle to the first one or number four. And uh, Alistair, what are your thoughts? What's your star rating? I'll go for a two. I'll rate five and six. I'll give them both three stars. I enjoy them. It's, uh, as I, I mean, it, my expectations, you know, I'm not expecting Christopher Nolan wizardry when I'm watching these films. I'm just expecting a bit of fun. A few people are going to die. There's going to be a few good punchy one-liners. My expectations were met on both occasions. So, three stars. Yeah, it is worth mentioning that uh, most franchises, especially slasher franchises, which really don't lend themselves to recurring characters all that often, this blows things like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6 and Halloween 6 out of the water. So that's the least thing it's got going for it. Uh, I reckon uh, 20 years from now, when people look back at Scream, we probably will not fondly remember it's a franchise because of just how long there were between entries, and I think the first one will tower above all the others. But at the same time, I don't think people will be ashamed of uh, Scream 5 or 6. You know, I think I think these are both, both quite good, and it makes me excited about Part 7. But mm. anyway, let's move on like the filmmakers are. We're going to our list. It's list time! Now, Mr. Jim Lamming has himself a list here. Me and Dal have no idea what this is going to be, what's going to be on it or anything like that. Jim, what's your list? This list is from Screen Rant, and in honour of Scream 6, very original, we've gone for horror films set in New York. So it's a top ten, uh... Looking at the order, I'm not sure what the top 10 are, is based on, but uh, I'm not sure it's quality of the films. The most uh, New York. Take, <laughs> <laughs> give or take one or two. Um, but yeah, uh, there's going to be some obvious ones in there, so go for it. Is one of these Jason Takes Manhattan? Uh, yes, it is. It's number 10 on the list. Uh, one, of course, we all joke barely features New York. Cool. Mostly yeah. in a boat. Just want to say Ghostbusters because it has some horror elements to it. No, but I would probably have put Ghostbusters in place of maybe one of these films here. Mm. But no, unfortunately not. Is Maniac in it? Maniac is not. What? Oh, this is mental. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not playing any longer. Uh, okay, let's see. A uh, Gremlin set New York. No, Gremlins Two, sorry, Gremlins Two. Yeah, that that would be a good shout, but no, again, doesn't feature mm-hmm. in the list. Mm. This is some BS here. Uh, uh, I'll I'll give you a clue. Uh, at least two of these films we've discussed before, and it is a very contemporary list as well. Oh, uh, Scream Six. Scream Six is on there at <laughs> number four. <laughs> Uh, okay, is uh, when I say New York, by the way, is this New York City or is some of this New York State? Uh, I would say Manhattan, looking okay. at this list. 
Is American Psycho in there? American Psycho sits on there at number nine. Oh. So that's why I question some of the positions on this, considering they've put yeah. Scream 6 at number four uh, and that and one's so low. If this includes ones that we've done before, I reckon that probably includes uh, Rosemary's Baby, I believe, is New York as well. It does include Rosemary's Baby in probably its rightful place, right at the top of the list at number one. Good. Oh, good shout. Oh, okay. I think I'm starting to struggle now. I want to say Hellraiser 3, but that's just clearly <laughs> a generic American city. <laughs> that would be a good shout, actually. And whilst New York does play something of a character in the films we've discussed, maybe not so much in some of the others, it just happens to be where they're set. Is uh, the Midnight Meat Train, that would be under there, Midnight right? Meat Train is on the list at number seven. I don't know if we shot in New York, but it's definitely set in New York. I think this came up on one of our lists previously, and I've got to say, I still haven't seen it. It's a Clive Barker one, that one. With uh, Mr. Vincent Jones as <laughs> the killer. <laughs> All right. Uh, so how many have we got so far? So we got Rosemary's Baby, we got Scream 6, we got uh, uh, American, American Psycho. Psycho. Friday the 13th, Part 13th. 8. Uh, Midnight Meat Train. So that leaves us with five left. So one with the found footage in Cloverfield. Cloverfield oh, is in there at number five. And I've got to be honest, I weren't a big fan of that one myself. I wasn't particularly either. I was just thinking the you know the old advert with the Statue of Liberty's head yeah, comes yeah. down. That was I was like, dark, we're here. Oh, are any of the Godzilla films on there as well? They are not. I uh, will give you a couple of clues one is a stephen king film set specifically in a, a hotel room oh uh it was room 1408 is that well, was that too too easy of a clue was it think of a stephen king constant reader so he's, he's always in uh always in the front of my mind okay and another one Although I guess the, there are horror themes, I would say it's kind of more of a legal film as well. Uh, Keanu Reeves. Oh, Devil's uh, Advocate. Yeah. Devil's Advocate. Uh, yeah, I've got to say, whenever someone mentions that, I always think of a Simpsons joke where Homer says, allow me to play Devil's Advocate for a moment, and then goes to play a pinball machine. <laughs> it's called Devil's Advocate. <laughs> right, so two left. Are these are these good films? Are you a fan of either of them? I, I would say they're more uh, psychological horrors than anything else. Uh, okay. Not so much a slasher or anything like that. Definitely going towards more psychological issues than... Oh, uh, Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder is on there at number three. And if that wasn't an inspiration for Silent Hill, I don't know what was. <laughs> and we've got one left, which is the number two. And again, I really can't think of anything without giving the game away, uh, it's uh, Darren tell, Aronofsky. Tell us where it's set. Oh, it's uh, <laughs> uh, Black Swan. Black that Swan. That's New York one, right? Is it number two? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got that. Ah, uh, oh, well. Black Swan could have been any city. I don't remember being New York. It could have been. I, I yeah. you know, if someone asked me where it was set, I would have said uh, in a ballet studio. Just <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, exactly, yeah. It's still Primary a cracking location. film. Uh, mm -hmm. Quite possibly, rightfully, sits there at number two. I would have definitely put American Psycho up higher. So from 10 to 1, we've got Friday the 13th, part 8, at number 10. Number 9 is American Psycho. At number 8 is 1408. Number 7 is Midnight Meat Train. 6, The Devil's Advocate. At 5, we've got Cloverfield. 4, Scream 6. I mean, they're really rating that film highly. Uh, number three is Jacob's Ladder, two Black Swan, and at number one, rightfully, is Rosemary's Baby. I can't believe that neither version of Maniac got on there. I would would probably have put the newer Maniac on rather than the original one. But, like, yeah, that's a very New York one. And they're like, yeah, that, that doesn't need to get on. But, like, Black Swan, which arguably isn't a horror, mm. <laughs> does. And it also... Mm. 
it's, I was supposed to say it's a horror, but the thing I didn't like with Black Swan for the record is one of the problems with Darren Aronofsky as a writer, I think, is the way that he handles symbolism, which is that he doesn't. You know, in this case, <laughs> you've got the guy going like, uh, yeah, you're pure, so you can play the white swan, but you know what? You haven't got in touch with your dark side, which would let you play the black swan. She's like, <clears throat> and then, like, ends up getting in touch with her dark side by shagging another woman. You're like, that's strangely homophobic, right? But, like, I just, I, I don't know, I, I, I just couldn't get into that movie. Um, I thought... Mila Kunis brought out the best in her. I, I think it just, it watched out bits like an SNL sketch. <laughs> But I, I, I tell you what, the, the ballet looked very impressive. Natalie Portman did a great performance as well. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and also, we didn't have like a Driller Killer, probably could have been another one. It's just, I mean, Driller, mm. Driller Killer isn't good, but it's very, very New York, you know? Yeah, there, there are a lot of films where it feels like the city is a character as much as anyone else. And mm. at least half of those could be set anywhere. Yeah, like Eyes Wide Shut couldn't really be set anywhere else. You know, same with um, uh, Basket Case is a kind of very sleazy side of New York in it. But yeah, anyway, anyway, who am I to complain about the list? Thank you all very much for joining us on uh, yet another visit to the Scream franchise. Uh, guys, thank you very much for being my co-host this evening. And uh, we wish you all a fond farewell and goodbye. Bye. See ya. Yeah. News, views, and reviews. Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk. Audio.